in Victory City, Birmingham. I'm so glad that you decided to join with us. Um, one more Sunday in this live recording. So that is an oxymoron, obviously live recording, but it is live for all of you who are watching. Um, I'm really grateful to God to be able to bring the word to you one more week, um, even in this this way. In particular, um, I was really encouraged this entire week. I had the opportunity to live stream through the T4G um, Together for the Gospel conference, which normally happens in the location, and I normally wouldn't be able to attend it, but because of faithful friends that I have and because of coronavirus, I was able to attend that conference live. If you go to T4G.org, you can rewatch the seminars, you can rewatch many of the panel discussions they have about the gospel, about theology. It was an encouragement to me, and I pray that it would be an encouragement to you as well. Also take note that I uploaded a YouTube Bible study on what happens when we die. Um, that was a very taxing Bible study to do, and it was very challenging for myself, but I pray that it offered up some clarity um, as far as what happens when we die, as far as what happens uh, when the rapture comes and the day of the Lord, things like that. So it is meant to encourage you not to bring any fear and certainly clear some things up for you. So my prayer is that you will enjoy that. Nevertheless, it is once again time for the word of God, and I'm extremely excited about that. Um, one of the questions that I have been asked and one of the questions that I have had many discussions with people about is what is the biggest problem in Christianity today? Now, most people will suggest to you that it's bad teaching or bad theology or maybe the pastors are too money hungry or maybe they're immoral. And, and I would say that those are all real, valid problems in what calls itself Christianity today. But I will also tell you that every one of those things is merely a side effect of what I think the real issue is. I believe that we can pinpoint all of the missteps and mistakes that many people make in Christianity to one thing, and that is a bad view of God. More importantly, that is a small view of God. If we were to travel virtually as we are able to through the many sermons and churches that are being preached, we would notice that many sermons are much more man-focused than they are God-centered. In fact, you know how I am want to do I searched around this past week to see what some of the sermons were. And so I have a few of those titles for you. One said, there's a hole in your story. The other one is, if I were you, I wouldn't wait too long. Another one is, resurrection life is yours. And you can still get there is the last one. Now, I, I can go on absolutely and and we, are, we actually saw this past week there was a great controversy among one of um, our local pastors about something that he sent out in regards to people getting their stimulus checks. And one of the things that we have noticed is 
that there are lots of people that have focused more on their own humanity, their own desires, their own strength, rather than an emphasis on the height, the depth, and the breadth of who God is. See, man has looked up at the eternal attributes of God and has decided in looking up at those attributes that we want to gain some semblance of the power that God has. How can we access that? How can we feel any worthiness that is comparable to that of God? Now, if we can grasp the depths, if we can grasp rather that the depths of God are indescribable, that they are unattainable, then it would actually bring us in our own lives into willful and loving submission to God, much like it did for David in our text today. So I hope that as we walk through this text that you will join together with me and see just how dependent on God we are. Let's go to the word of God. In Psalms 8, it reads, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hand. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the seas, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Father God, we are here again quite humbly as we look to you today in the word of God. We pray that the eyes of our hearts will be enlightened, that we can see a clearer, fuller picture of who you really are, God. Lord, shrink the image that we have of ourselves and enhance the true version that we should have of who Yahweh God really is so that we can serve you without having to serve ourselves. It is in your name that we pray. Amen. When David begins this psalm, he proclaims, O Lord, our Lord, he is proclaiming here the sovereign name of God, which is Yahweh. His reiteration expresses a sensibility that God in all his power and all his might, which he has, should absolutely put a great distance between God and man. Yet somehow, miraculously, he is our Lord. This is definitely a proclamation from David that ex exudes astonishment. This massive, huge, majestic, sovereign Lord is somehow our Lord. 
How can that be? How can we take possession of him? He is God and we are humbly at the mercy of his possession. Now, he is not ours in the sense that he is at our beckon and command and that we have actually taken possession of him. But he is ours in the sense of when he has taken possession of us, we have taken hold of him. But what boggles the mind of David here is what should also boggle the mind of anybody that is reading this text is that somehow we mere humans have been able, been capable, been empowered to formulate a relationship with almighty God and Yahweh. See, when we look to God, we should not feel that we are owed anything, but that we owe him everything. And the fact is that because we owe him everything, we should also feel like we don't deserve anything that we have. That is the heart of our gratitude, knowing that he is great and powerful. And the fact that he would even allow our hearts to continue to beat or allow our lungs to continue to inhale and exhale should bring about a great deal of gratefulness, but also humble submission and admiration for who he is. Next here, he says that you have set your glory above the heavens. Again, David is using an exceptional way to demonstrate the greatness of God. He compares him to something that we cannot effectively even measure. He says that his glory is set above. It is set above the heavens. Now, You may ask the question, well, what is the glory of God? The glory of God is the sum total of all of God's attributes, his nature, his essence, everything, his radiance, everything that makes God, God. In fact, when Isaiah saw it in a vision, he described God's glory as a trail as a, a, a train from a, a wedding gown, except that it filled the entirety of the temple. We are also told that in heaven there is no need for the sun because the very glory of God fills the entirety of it. See, the next portion here presents, though, some interpretive challenges, and we really do want to be very clear about what it means. After he is describing this, the excellence of God, the majesty of God, the radiance of God, the glory of God, the truth of who God is, he then brings the text all the way down, and he says, but out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength, Because of your foes. Well, wait a minute. What does this mean? Out of the mouth of babies, out of the mouth of infants, why not out of the mouth of adults? Why not out of the wisdom of man? You just described this really big God. How great is our God. He is our Lord, our God. Yet you have said that it is out of the mouths of babies and infants that he has established his strength. 
To fully grasp this, we must actually look forward. There are two particular instances in Scripture, both are recorded in Matthew, that will bring us a great deal of clarity to what David is communicating here. The first one we see in Matthew 18 and 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 21, Jesus actually quotes directly from the Psalms 8 text when the Pharisees were indignant about the fact that as Jesus was making his triumphal entry, that the children were a part of that celebration saying and screaming Hosanna. So what is the big deal here? Why is the comparison of this big God to these little children? Look at what Jesus says. They asked him, and the question is really important here. The question is, who is the greatest in the kingdom? Now, I'm sure they're looking for Jesus to make some statement that says, well, it's the smartest, it's the boldest, it's the wisest. Something that will put man ahead, but that's not what he says. He says that unless you lower yourself, you will not enter into this kingdom. That is a slap in the face of those of us who feel like we can acquire more knowledge or do more works and that they will bring us somehow closer to God. No, it is not when we grow, but it is when we shrink in the presence of God that we are truly drawn near to him. Why, though? Why is the comparison to children? Well, I think I know why. Children have three indelible characteristics that we must all have in our relationship with God. The first one is that children are innocent. Children are innocent. The second one is that they are dependent. And the third one is that they are trusting. These are all characteristics that as we grow older and older and become more aged and wise adults, these characteristics become more callous in our lives. We, however, though, what Jesus is saying is we must revert back to childlike faith. This is not childish faith. It is childlike faith. What is childlike faith? When a child is born, okay, they have no concept of how they were conceived. They have no concept. They can't comprehend how they came through the birth canal. They don't even know how they're really eating. They just know when they're hungry, the food is there and they eat. They have the full confidence that when they need to eat, the food will be there. Listen, we need not be inflated in our egos or our arrogance to feel closer to God, but we must humble ourselves in the mystery of his greatness and simply submit that he is God and we are not. 
Next, we see that David is stricken and put in awe of the greatness of God's creation. Now, our translation says, when I look at your heavens, this word, however, is probably best interpreted as consider. It's better translated when I consider, when I contemplate the heavens, that being sky and space. It brings me to the inevitable question. What is man that you are mindful of him? David is, David is asking the question here with sincere confusion and awe. If the entire universe, and this is what scripture says, was created by the fingertips of God, what is man to that? God, God is mindful of man. He cares for man. Listen, the greatness of man is not, in is not tied up in the fact that we have greatness on our own accord, but is in, it is tied into the fact that God alone is great and the fact that he cares about us, that he consider us, should absolutely blow our minds. Literally, it should confound us. Let me try to make sense of this. And I understand this is a crude example. This is a poor example, but it's the best way I can try to explain it. If right now, regardless of your feeling of the president, if right now he called you, specifically called you, and I don't mean automated, he directly called you and called you by name, the busiest man in the world, and said, hey, I'm just checking on you. You would be amazed. Not just that you got a call from the president, but that he knew your name, that he knew your phone number, that he took the time to personally call you. You were actually on his mind. It's crazy, right? Now, think like David. God, in the midst of all of this uncertainty for us, in the midst of coronavirus, in the midst of billions of people praying to him, begging for him, calling his name, still did not miss you. That is amazing. What is man? Who are we to be considered by God? Our value then is not in that we can explain all the depths of who God is, but is that he knows the depths of who we really are. That is amazing. The scripture tells us that we have been made in his image. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. That he can count every single hair that is on our heads. That is a God who in his, his might and majesty created the universe still has not gotten you lost in the rest of his creation. And moves us on to verse 5. And verse 5 is a little difficult to interpret, and I'll tell you why. By all accounts, the original Hebrew that says that God created man a little lower than himself. Now, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, 
the word is actually translated either to angels or heavenly beings. So it says that God created man a little lower than the angels or the heavenly beings. But I tend to learn to lean rather on the original. And let me explain why. First is that that is what the original communicated. That is what we tend to want to stick with. But two, it better explains the relationship that God has with mankind. Angels, while also being God's creation, are not provided for and cared for the way that man is cared for. They are not fed. They are not taken care of like we are, but they are also missing the redeemable characteristic of mankind, which is that God dwells in us through his Holy Spirit. They can dwell with him, but we say that he dwells in us. So in that we should feel small, sure, in comparison to God, but we should still feel significant in our relationship with God. By nature of that relationship, we remember that we have been crowned with glory and with honor. How was that? Well, we've mentioned it before. I just mentioned it. We've been created in his image. We've been created in his likeness and with his attributes. Knowing this, there should be this perpetual nearness that we actually feel to God because he makes himself near to us. Listen, we need not try to give ourselves any higher status or standing with God. When we submit to his power and glory, we are as near to God as we possibly can be. Finally here, David contrasts all of the handiwork of God and man's small stature to this. You have given him dominion over the works of your hand. Well, wait. We are small, and I, I mean, we are like grains of sand, specks in the eyes of God. When we compare ourselves to his power and glory, yet he has given man dominion over his works, his creation. That is the nature of our relationship with God. He has entrusted the works of his hand into our hands. Now, I've heard people say things like, we have control and we have power and this stuff has to obey us. And listen, that, that is just bad theology. That is not true. God didn't give us the power, but he gave us the responsibility. That's an important word. God gave us the responsibility to care for his creation. Yes, he did. Now, do you think that God did this to make us feel more empowered independently of him? Absolutely not. He did it so we would depend on him. We are talking about all of God's creation. All of God's creation that he has given us the responsibility of, the dominion of. 
But the only way that we can effectively actually take control of it is if we relinquish control back to him. And in that, he has put all of his creation under the feet of man. He did that out of his goodness. Finally, David closes by reiterating the beginning and says how majestic the name of God is. This is David's conclusion. If God is big enough in my life, then I don't need to be. I don't need power. I don't need control. I don't need notoriety. I don't need fame. I don't need acclaim. I just need him. He has everything. He alone is the source of everything. This is probably one of the most challenging components to what people believe in Christianity today is that we must have everything. But unless you have God, you don't have anything. Unless you have a right relationship with the holy, sovereign God of the Bible, you've already lost everything. We cannot get caught up in this postmodern society that teaches us that it is our own truth. We are subjected to our own relative truth and that we live our truth. There is one truth, people. And that truth is bigger than we can comprehend. It is larger than we can think him. We can't even fashion in our minds when the universe began, yet somehow it began by somebody who doesn't even have a beginning. That is who our God is. And if I think that anything else in my life will bring me fulfillment other than that, then I will utterly fail. Listen to this. Let's close with this. There was a girl looking up at the sky one day with her grandmother. And as she looked up to the sky with her grandmother, she asked her, she said, Grandmother, is, is the sun the biggest thing that you've ever seen? And she said, well, yeah, baby, I guess, I guess it is the biggest thing I've ever seen. She said, okay, well, I guess that means that it's the biggest thing ever, right? Her grandmother said, well, no, it's not the biggest thing ever because it's in space and it's on galaxy. And if the galaxy in space is holding it, then it has to be bigger than the sun. She said, ah, I got it. So space, the galaxy is the biggest thing ever. Got it. Perfect. She said, well, no, it can't be the biggest thing either because it's merely one galaxy of many. Astounded, the girl looked up to her grandmother and said, well, what is the biggest thing ever? And her grandmother replied like this, it is that thing that we cannot measure. It is that which we see the full effects of. It is a thing by which Everything else exists. And then she said it succinctly. 
It is God. What does that mean? That means that the man on the plane is only as big as the people he sees on the ground. If we use God as the measurement for everything else in our lives, that we will realize that the money doesn't matter. The cars don't matter. The clothes don't matter. Who knows us doesn't matter. If God is the thing by which we compare the entirety of our lives, everything else looks small. To truly and properly assess the greatness of God, we need not start with any other source but God. At the beginning of this sermon, I mentioned that man desires to feel bigger than what is suitable. That is because our source of measurement is other mortal men. Thereby, we feel large or big or overly significant. But when we look to God, and and I mean look to him, his handiwork, then we find no comfort in our own humanity, but we are efficaciously drawn to his deity. What can be said of God? As David said, what is man? that you are mindful of him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. God, what is man? Who am I? God, not just that you created me, but from the time I was conceived. From the time we were all conceived, you have given us life and breath over and over and over and over and over again. God, not one of us has slipped past you. You know every single one of us. Who are we? We were created in your image and we were created on to good works because of your grace and because of your goodness and because of your majesty not our own so God we pray today that you have given us that we have a right view of who you really are God let us not shrink you down in order to fit you in our box of reality but let us acknowledge you for who you truly are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.